Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend and Chavruta, Yerdena Osband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Chagiga, daf vav, page six. Another daf that is full, chock full of good things to talk about. We're going to try to contain ourselves. Um, I want to talk about on the first, on the very top of the daf, so high on the top of the daf that it begins on the previous daf, Eizu Katan. We have a citation, right? A discussion, a citation, or a commentary on the Mishnah, the Mishnah where it says that a minor is one. No, it's a citation from the Mishnah. So a child who is too young to ride on his father's shoulders, right? That's how young the child is who is exempt, exempt from the mitzvah of Re'iyah. So Rabbi Zera asks, and now we're on Ardaf. Ad hacha man atya. Who brought him here? Meaning, who got this child all the way to Yerushalayim, to Jerusalem, if the father cannot bring the child to Jerusalem? So, I'm sorry, if the child could bring the child to Jerusalem, then what's the big deal about getting him to the Temple Mount? Meaning, the whole issue of getting him from wherever they live, that they've made this Aliyat Regal, if he could ride on his father's shoulders, to, I mean, if, he, if his father could bring him to Jerusalem, he could, even if he can't ride on his father's shoulders, shouldn't he be able to get him to the Temple Mount? Shouldn't he then be obligated? So Abaye says, well, the way here, He says, to get here, here meaning to Jerusalem, his mother is also obligated in Simcha, meaning the Simcha of the holiday. So his mother brought him when she came up to Yerushalayim. Mikan from this point on, im yachola lot v'lechos biyado shalavim Yerushalayim laharabayit chayav v'ilo patur. From this point forward, he has to be able to ascend, to climb up, to climb up. It's not really climbing, right? It's walking up the hill to hold his father's hand to get from Jerusalem, from within Jerusalem, to the Temple Mount. And if he can do that, then he, in fact, is obligated and if he's not, then he's exempt. So I feel like there are so many, you know, nuggets of excitement to talk about right here, beginning with the fact that there's a presumption that the mom goes, the women, right, because of their obligation in Simcha, came to Jerusalem. Meaning we talk all the time about, oh, my goodness, the women were not obligated in Re'iyah. They didn't have to do Aliyah regular. They must have stayed home. And here we get this statement that says, well, the mother came to Jerusalem just not the actual Temple Mount, um, you know, not going into the Temple. It's just going to the Temple Mount. Today it's the Temple Mount. Then it was really just the Temple, or Badafka of the Temple, not just. Hey, Rebbe Tachat Beit Hillel. So Rebbe Nasi says, responds here in place of Beit Hillel, responding specifically to the position of Beit Shammai that we saw in the Mishnah. So what happens? And let's take a step back. We all know the story of Chana, the mother, the mother to be of Shmuel, right? The prophetess in the book of Shmuel, right? And what happens? So the family comes to Ali on Aliyat Regal, basically, right? Meaning they all come, um, including Penina and Chana and all of the family, right? And Chana still doesn't have any children at that point, right? Uh, no, I'm taking it back. This is the next year, right? The next year when she's, or maybe two years later, when it's time the child has been born and Hannah does not go with the family like she did before when she went to pray. That's the famous part that everybody knows about. She says to her husband, right? This is what it says. 
Laisha to her husband, Ad Igamel Hana'ar, until he is weaned, that's when I will bring him. They had the time that the child was not yet weaned, she didn't bring him to the to the at that time the Mishkan. But but Shmuel was able to ride on his father's shoulders. So here, this is why I say a couple of years later, I've I've messed up the timeline. And I should go back and, you know, start it. Let's line it up again, right? The first year that's not discussed here, the first the first Aliyah Regal, what happens? Chana goes and prays for a son in the Mishkan. She's accused of being drunk, all of that. We know that story, okay? She conceives. She has a baby. Now, the baby is not yet weaned, but apparently he is old enough, meaning he's, let's say he's not yet 24 months old because that's the age, that's the halachic age of weaning, but that's also two years old. There's a good amount of time between birth and two years old when a child should, most children are able to walk and let's say hold onto an adult's hand or ride on their father's shoulders, right? But this child does not go up to the Mishkan. So again, the implication being, let's learn all of this out from this narrative that the issue is he has to be able to walk on his own, not just ride on his father's shoulders. Amr le'avua, so Rabbi Yudah Nasi's father says to him, So according to what you're saying, then we've got a question on Chana herself. Meaning, Wasn't Chana herself obligated to show up to Jerusalem because of the mitzvah of Simcha? Didn't she have to show up to rejoice? Because of her own obligation, meaning not just bringing him. Ella Chana Mefankuta Yeterta Chazia Bishmuel. So rather, what happens? Chana decides that she needs to keep, she needs to take extra special care of Shmuel. Mefanik um, is a little bit like to spoil, but it means like to treat well, you know, to indulge. Um, and she's taking care of him in Shmuel because she's concerned. What happens if he would be weak on the journey, right? So then, since she could, felt she couldn't bring him because she was concerned that he might not do well on the journey, so then she herself did not come, regardless of any obligation she might have had, right? So, of course, what's interesting, again, so many interesting things to talk about here in just in this very relatively brief passage, because, A, let's begin with the fact that the women the mothers, Chana herself has an obligation of simcha. And yet here we also see on her own discretion, she, according to this passage, right? She makes the decision not to go because not because of her own obligation, but because of the child. So she's, you know, setting herself aside, but also you might think that if she has an obligation, then doesn't that just, you know, take care of anything else that it's going to trump any other concern she might have had for him. She better get there in order to fulfill the obligation of Simcha. And the answer is no, he's too little to need to fulfill his own Simcha. I'm sorry, his own mitzvah of Ria. And once that's in place, once she has concern for his own handling of the journey, right, that she could be worried that he might be weakened by the journey, then she too can take, um, you know, some kind of, I don't know. Um, I'm missing the word, but whatever. She can join him in that staying home because of her concern for him. Um, I find the whole thing to be very, very interesting. And of course, Gemara goes on from there to talk about, you know, what happens in other situations of of children who are lame or blind or whatever, where they might otherwise have an obligation. In fact, they might be able to walk, but they can't walk because of this reason, or they can't, uh, you know, fulfill the mitzvah of Ria because of some other reason. But this passage, specifically as a commentary on that Mishnah, 
I find to be particularly interesting. Um, and then I just want to note that Abaye comes at the end of this section, really, basically. And he says, Kol so any place, and it's a good rule of thumb, I think beyond this particular mitzvah, any time that an adult is obligated according to the Torah law, then we train our ketanim, we train our minors, you know, for according to drabanan, according to a rib, rabbinic level. And then likewise, um, and anywhere where an adult would be exempt, so too the katan, the child would be an exempt would be exempt. What I find interesting again is that here the adult, Chana, takes the exemption because of the child's exemption, which might be what mothers do all the time, but it's an interesting halachic twist, I think. So I think this emphasis that you brought up at the beginning, that women still came, they just weren't obligated in Re'iyah, is very interesting. Um, I have to think a little bit more about that. I think we looked at it as a big, like, either or. Like, oh, it was all the men folk who were coming up. But we forget that actually the, you know, Shlame Chagiga uh, and, well, actually the Shlame Simcha, women are obligated and they have to participate in that. Um, and, uh, you know, so they were coming up and they were part of it. They just weren't in the temple mount piece of it. Um, and so I think what initially is read as a holiday or the holidays being celebrated as being very male centric, I think the story with Hannah and Shmuel shows us that really it still ended up being a family affair, right? Women had to come up because of the Shlame Simcha. Children had to come up because of Chagiga. So in the end, the whole family would still, you know, would still sort of arrive and come. Yeah. And I think that for me, this is a little bit of a you know, a wake up call, not a wake up call, you know, like a knock to my senses, because I remember when I had learned or inferred or something that the women didn't do Aliyat Regal because they weren't obligated. And then the answer to that is, well, it's not that simple. And I should have been aware of the Chana Panina Eli story to begin with. Right. And made sure that I kept in mind that, of course, the whole family went like that's what they did. But also that's before, you know, all this it was before the temple. It was in the time of the Mishkan. I might not have used that as the right model, but I should have, because here they do. I want to go on, and uh, I have uh, two interesting machlokas that appear, one starting at the bottom of Amid Aleph and one on Amid Bet. And I think these, each one of these machlokas, I think sort of have very deep and a little bit like theological understandings of sort of how we practice and do mitzvot and the transmission of law, um, which sounds very heavy because it is heavy. <laughs> okay. So the first one is, is that the Mishnah, uh, our beginning, Dafet uh, says, right? So Beit and Beit Hillel have a machlokas about how much money the Olat Ria versus the Shlame Chagiga had to be. And so now they bring a brace that sort of elaborates our, this, uh, this machlokas. Tana Rabbanan, Beit Shammai Omrim, Beit Shammai says, Ha-Ri'iya shtei kesef ha-chagiga ma'a kesef, right? So Beit Shammai says the Ri'iya has to be worth two kesefs, two ma'od, and then the chagiga is one ma'av silver. Shaha-Ri'iya ola, ola kula l'gavoa, because the olat Ri'iya was offered up, it's, it's burned entirely, right? That's what an ola is. There's no part of it that you actually eat. Masha'in came the Chagiga, but that's not true with the Chagiga, right? With the Shlame Chagiga, right? It's a Korban Shlamim. So you actually, uh, you uh, you eat part of it. Part of it is eaten by the owner and part of it is eaten by the uh, by the Kohen. 
Um, and we also see with the Shavuot festival, right? That the when the Torah talks about what the korbanos had to be given, so there was shtei which was basically the first offering that was brought from the new wheat crop, and this was, uh, and that's like a wheat offering, but it was brought by a series of animal korbanos which were 10 olot and two shlamim. So because the Torah has more olot given than shlamim, and this you can see, this is in Vayikra chapter 23, right? So what Beit Shammai says based on this is that it must be that sort of an, a korban olah is more valuable than a shlamim. So in other words, the reason why Beit Shammai basically says that an olah needs to be, the re, the olah uh, the of the re'iyah needs to cost more than the uh, chagiga is because an ola by itself has more value. And again, and then his two his two proofs here are that because the ola entirely goes to God, there's no part of it that you eat. And second, that even with the korbanos of Shavuot, more olot are given versus shlamim, which shows that olot must be better. Ubeid Hello, I mean, Beit Hello disagrees. Hariya ma'at kasef, right? The re'iyah can just be worth one ma'at kasef, v'chagiga shtei kasef, whereas the chagiga has to be two kasef. Right, so he sort of uh, he reverses it. And now this is very interesting. He says because the shlamei chagiga was brought before the word of God was given at Sinai. Okay, so what he's basically saying is is that there there's a pasuk. Right, uh, sorry, let me just finish this before I read the pasuk. which was not true about the olot riyah. Um, and then and right, we also see with respect to the korbanot that the Nisim brought, right? We talk about when they dedicated the Mishkan, right? That more shlamim were given than uh, uh, than olot. So the second half of his argument, right, is similar to Beit Shammai. He looks for an example, but he looks for when more shlamim is given than olot in order to say that Shlamim are more important. And the example he uses is the, what the Nisim brought when the, at the Hanukkah HaMishkan, which is talked about in Bamidbar chapter uh, seven. But this piece of because the Shlame Chagiga were brought before the word of God. So what is he referring to here? There's a Pasuk in Shemot, chapter 24, verse five, that says, Moshe sent the youth, uh, the youth of the children of Israel. They offered up olot, and they slaughtered shlamim sacrifices. Okay, and so basically, what the Gemara is going to continue to explain is, is that these shlamim sacrifices were shlamei chagiga, right? And uh, and that this is what was given, um, and olot re'iyah was not given, right? Even though an olot re'iyah actually would have been. An appropriate, uh, an, an appropriate uh, korban to give, because what happens at the time of Matan Torah, they're literally, literally seeing God and being seen by God, right? They're <coughs> with the divine. So why wouldn't you give, uh, you know, an olat re'iyah? But the idea is, is that based on this pasuk here, right? Even though it says vayilu olot vayisbuchu zivchei shlamim, um, he sort of Beit uh, Hillel is sort of not using the word olot, but is emphasizing the word shlamim and says what korban had to be given around the time of Matan Torah, it had to be a, a korban, uh, it, it had to be the Shlamei Chagim. 
And it was, and therefore, because that was the korban that was given, meaning before the Torah was actually given, it shows us that that is sort of a type of korban, the shlamei chagiga, which is of more value or more important than the olat ri'ia, because it, it you know, it, it, it's sort of the original, the original korban. Um, so then the Gemara goes on and wants to actually like, you know, understand what this is. Like, why does Beit Hillel not say the same um, as Beit Shammai? Um, and, uh, uh, you know, and then it wants to go on and explain uh, why, you know, does Beit Shammai not explain, not uh, agree with Beit Hillel? Um, so I'm going to skip over, you know, but the interesting piece here with the Beit Shammai piece of why he doesn't agree with Beit Hillel is because he holds the opposite, right? To Ka'amar. You know, regarding that, what was said that Beit Hillel said the Shlame Chagiga is superior because it was brought before the Dibor, before the Word of God. He says, no, the Ola Ria was also was also brought beforehand, right? Um, and how do we know that? It was also brought, right? And so the way that we know that is, is because, sorry, when you look at that original Pasuk and Shmo, chapter 24, verse 5, it has the word Olot in it. It says, um, And so, uh, so Beit Shammai holds Olot and Shlamim were both given, basically, at that time. Whereas Beit Hillel says, no, it was only uh, only the Shlamim uh, that, were, uh, that were brought. Now, the Gemara is going to ask, right, does want to understand, you know, basically... Uh, is going to want to know how is it uh, that, uh, you know, Beit Hillel sort of can just ignore uh, the word, uh, the word Olot. And so he basically says, because Savri Beit Hillel, again, I'm skipping around a little bit, the Olah that they brought up beforehand, Olat HaTamid, it was, uh, it was just a Korban um, Tamid. It was sort of that communal Olah that's brought twice a day, once in the morning and once in the afternoon. Um and that's what was brought up, but it had nothing to do with any type of like festival offerings, which is what the Olat Ri'ia is. And so therefore you can't actually learn anything from it. But I think this is a very interesting fundamental machlokas, which is sort of trying to figure out, you know, when we think about korbanot and the origin of korbanot, sort of what is the original korban, right? What's, because we know there's all different types of korbanot. But what's really like the original korban? Um, and according to Beit Hillel, it's the shlamim, right? The the shlami chagiga. And according to Beit to Beit Shammai, no, there were olot and shlamim that were both brought around the time of Matan Torah. Now, as an interesting sidebar, that pasuk that I quoted, even though Beit Hillel keeps using this language of lifneha dibor, if you actually look chronologically in the text, that pasuk appears after Matan Torah. And so then there's a discussion with the commentaries: what does that mean? And they basically just say, well, there's no chronological order, but the idea is it was the Korban that was given around the time of the of Matan Torah. So just, just if you note that, you are correct that chronologically what Beit Hillel says is not exactly entirely accurate. But it's interesting to see that there's sort of a, an acknowledgement that sort of Korbanot were given, but what type of Korbanot were given before the laws of the Korbanot were actually understood. And therefore, the second machlokas that I want to bring our attention to, I think even explains this a little bit more. Um, and so basically, what, what goes on here is, is that um, a, a, a baye, 
right? Basically, uh, you know, he gives a little bit more of a, uh, well, the Gemara basically, Abai basically notes that this actually was a machlokas of the Tanaim, right? That Rabbi Elazar, Rabbi Yishmael, they believed, they agreed with Beit Shammai. And then you had Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Yossi Haglili, they agreed with, uh, with uh, Beit Hillel. Um, and that, uh, and, and, you know, that what was the, the Allah that was given, right? Was it an Allah Re'iyah or was it an Allah Tamid? Um, and so that the Allah Re'iyah is Beit Shammai and other Tanaim, Rabbi Elazar, Rabbi Shmuel agreed with that. And according to Beit Hillel, Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Yossi Haglili agree with Beit Hillel that the Allah that's mentioned in that Pasuk and Shmot is the Allah Tad Tamid. And then we get to a very interesting machlokas between Rabbi Yishmael and uh, Rabbi Akiva. So Beit, so Abai wants to explain this machlokas a little more. Beit Shammai, right? Beit Shammai who holds that it was an Olat Re'iyah. Hadam Rinan. We already, we already learned, right? Or it's already stated. Rabbi Yishmael is of this opinion. Ditanya. We learned in a brisa. Rabbi Yishmael Omer, Klalot Nem The general principles of the mitzvot were basically told to Moshe at Sinai at the time of Matan Torah. But the specifics were not given until after the dedication of the Mishkan, right? And then God, uh, you know, communicates with Moshe again. So sort of the general principles, you know, and the Aserat Hadibur, all that's given at Matan Torah, but the specifics of how the mitzvot are actually supposed to be kept, and that's going to include many of the details about the Korbanot, is not done until the Mishkan's actually put up. But Rabbi Akiva holds both the, you know, both the principles and the details are told at Sinai, the and they're just repeated. They're retaught in the Mishkan. Okay. Um, and then are both Moab. And then they're repeated for a third time, uh, you know, in, in Moab, right when B'nai Israel, this is Devarim basically, right before B'nai Israel is about to go into Eretz Yisrael. The Yisrael. Now, you should think that according to basically Rabbi Yisrael Midbar, that the Olah that B'nai Israel gave in the Midbar, Olah Tamid Habe, was a Korban Tamid. How could it be that the Olah that was given, the Korban Tamid Olah, right, did not require skinning and dismemberment? And so what he's saying here is that there's a specific detail to the Ola of the Tamid, which is different, which is the Korban Tamid has to be skinned and cut up in a certain way before it's put on the Mizbeach. So what Rabbi Yishmael is saying is, is that if only the Klalot were given, you wouldn't know that detail about the Korban Tamid till the Mishkan was dedicated. So how could they have given the Olot Tamid correctly from the time of the Torah? Because that important detail of how the carcass had to actually be prepared to be put on top of the Mizbeach would not have been known that, right? Um, right? And only later would it require skinning or dismemberment. In other words, it always had to be given the same way. Um, and then Abai is going to go on and uh, and explain a little bit uh, uh, more about that. Um, and, uh, you know, and what, uh, and, and, uh, and then he goes on even more to explain about Rabbi Akiva's opinion, right? That basically... Um, you know, that the uh, the way that the, the mitzvot were uh, were given a little bit, uh, uh, that they were given later on. Um, the details, excuse me, were given later on. I think this is a fascinating machlokas. 
because it really makes us think a little bit about what happens at Matan Torah, right? Is the entire Torah given at Matan Torah or it's just the general principles given at Matan Torah? And the practical difference about this has to do with when our korbanot, as we understand korbanot, actually initiated. Um, and so again, we are doing the daf, so we probably don't have as much time to unpack it. But I challenge all of us to really think about what are some of the differences about this machlokas, first starting with Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai, that sort of like certain korbanot were given even before the full Torah was understood, right? Or maybe even before the Torah was actually given. Um, and other korbanot could not have possibly been given. And then this machlokas of Beit, Beit, uh, uh, Rabbi Shmuel and Rabbi Akiva, right? Which is sort of what happens actually at Matan Torah, right? What is, what's actually given over? And do you think it's that the entire Torah is given? Or is it that, you know, which is Rabbi Akiva's opinion, or is it that just the uh, general principles are given? And I want to make a little bit of a bold statement. I think this really fits with the personalities of, Rabbi Yishmael and Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Yishmael, we know, was very famous. He had sort of these yud gimel midot, right? There were 13 principles. This is how you darshan the Torah. That's how you could explain the Torah to get to all the mitzvot. And that's all you could do. Whereas Rabbi Akiva believed, right, that you could basically make a drasha basically on anything. Any way that a word appeared, you could make a drasha about anything. We're not necessarily bound by just these 13 midot of Rabbi Yishmael. And I'm wondering if some of that philosophy comes from this, right? That in other words, Rabbi Yishmael holds, there's klalot that are given. And so similarly, when it comes to interpreting Torah, we have a small number of klalot. Everything else will flow out from there. Rabbi Akiva has a much more expansive understanding of how we can interpret the literal text, the little literal words of the Torah itself. But that can only be true if the details were given at the same time. It cannot be true if the details were given later. And so I just also think that somehow their philosophies of interpretation are somehow connected to this machlokas as well. I'm going to say something maybe radical that I a few times where the Mishnah was oblique until the Gemara and now you, Yardena, came along and unpacked it. And it talked about the machlok and what was worth what and what the machlok, like why they thought this would be two versus one. Right? It was like, I don't want to say mumbo jumbo. I don't mean it like it was clear, but the why and the about completely absent from the Mishnah. And here, you've unpacked it rather nicely. So we thank you for that. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you, right? You initially read that mission, you're like, okay, they're just assigning value to how much the korban should be worth. But when you see it in the context of this b'risa, and then the machlokas of Rabbi Shemal and Rabbi Akiva, you're like, no, this is like a fundamental machlokas. This is not just like a little machlokas. This is saying some, something never... fundamental about tradition and, and worship, and you cannot pick it up just on your initial read of the Mishnah. Unless the Mishnah didn't need to say all this, because in the time, people really knew it. So it was just like a, a, you know, a cheat sheet to remember. Everybody knows that that one, one versus two, two versus one, is really code. But I think that is true. Because in other words, that's what the Gemara does, right? So what it ends up doing is it brings other Tanaitic literature. 
And it's saying like, okay, I have this Mishnah. It's not so clear. Oh, but then I have this Brisa and the Brisa makes it really clear. So it may have been in the times of the Mishnah, all of that Tanaitic statement was understood. And yes, this Mishnah was just a cheat sheet. But by the time you get to the Amorayim, they need to line it all up to make it very clear to us what's going on. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Revenant Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hodgson website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go.